Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the front three. It's good to have you. Although tonight it's only a front two. Lawrence McKenna and Kristen Hennage joins me. Chris, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Matt. How are you? Yeah, good. Two of the original members. Uh, no Dave, no Adam tonight. Uh, you know, those two frauds. <laughs> two guys, I'm, I'm joking. Um, there is plenty of football to discuss. Not only is the international break unfolding and England unfolding with it, uh, but there's plenty of transfer speculation, etc., uh, etc., et going on which uh I don't know, seems to be what a lot of people are into uh chris you put out a tweet before the show which actually looked quite popular um mm. lots of good questions on there uh i'm more interested though in what you consider to be kind of the big talking point of this week you and i have both been discussing transfers back and forth mm-hmm. um but what's what's been your big uh take yeah i, th- I think it's been almost impossible to avoid the messy situation, which I think in turn bleeds into the transfer market as a whole and how it's become, it feels just like this summer, maybe because it's a condensed schedule and everything's a bit truncated, but it just feels like it's become such pageantry this summer, almost as if like you're just watching a stage play being acted through social media. Yeah, of course. And a, a, a part of it for me is also the vernacular that people are using around it, which is kind of, um, how can I put it, sort of, uh, you know, t- term, uh, there, there is intent on the player's side. The player wants to leave. Uh, you know, there's potentially a transfer here. There is, uh, you know, th- the only thing that needs to be agreed now is the transfer fee. In principle, this is happening. Part of me just kind of wonders if there's a better way of basically just saying, look, the player's holding the shirt, that's it. Before that, shut up. Yeah, I I think that's kind of the problem, is that it feels to me like it's become just an extension of of public relations, or I guess client journalism, to, to use another term, whereby these people that have built this reputation on being transfer specialists, in inverted commas, are so either so desperate to have that scoop that they will claim things 
that maybe they haven't found themselves or they've sourced from from the reports of others or by the same token they maybe know that what they're being given is not the most honest information but they're happy to play that game it just it just seems like actually there's the smoke and mirrors is not in trying to find the truth it's in trying to find what is potentially the most clickable and i hate part of being a yeah yeah part, part of being a journalist now is growing your brand and i get there were journalist brands back in the day but uh you know there's very much a sort of uh being a person who's in the know or being a person who's kind of you know close to an agent or close to a player or any of these kind of things and I mean, I, I guess when we look back in the future, we're going to kind of go, God, why don't we have like a bullshit meter on uh, transfers? Or why don't we have, you know, something which uh, held people to account? Uh, everyone seems to have forgotten about fake news. I believe it is still a thing. Yeah, and I think that's my concern is that it feels like we almost don't really care what's said anymore as long as we hear something. Like you, you'll see right. someone tweet something a, a writer tweets something about this transfer story and underneath it's just a like a swarm of like a school of fish just any news on this any news on this and the obsession with getting a new player in seems to overtake almost the football club itself and the institution and everything else maybe i'm looking at this through a very anglicized lens because it feels like it's talked about a lot more there and i don't have the experience of knowing what Bundesliga fans in Germany or, you know, Ligue 1 fans in France talk about. But yeah, it is yeah, yeah. and, and, and often, I guess what you find is that the back pages are almost a practice of what the front, the techniques that the front pages will use in a few years' time. Um, so, you know, uh, I guess a couple of years ago, we saw a lot more infographics being used on the back pages. Now we see the front pages using a lot more infographics, a lot more creative layouts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, we see transfer rumours uh, and then after a while, rumours and political things like that seem to be a lot more uh, prevalent. Uh, people in the back pages basically thinking it's okay to lie because, you know, it makes news uh, that then becoming very much about the front pages as well. Um, so I'll be interested to see if Fabrizio Romano gets inside news on Donald Trump's election anytime soon um, or not. Who knows? Maybe they'll get it direct from a, another source that finds it out themselves as well. And the, uh, no is not, the irony is not lost on me that we are now discussing it ourselves, so adding another layer of that on top. Yeah, but, but sort of meta. Yeah, and the reason I think that's relevant is because this messy story is theoretically huge because it's someone leaving a club that he is part of the very fabric of and has helped elevate to the position that it rests in. But at the same time, I see a video, but I see essentially outlining what his father had for dinner in Barcelona. And it's like, I don't know if that's... Is that really a thing? Yeah. Maybe it's the nerd in me creeping out where I'm more interested in, well, actually, where would he even fit at Manchester City, theoretically? Like, I just think there are different ways that we could do this, different things we could look at and and talk about that don't necessarily revolve around the disposable nature of tracking a transfer that, for the most part, I, I likened it to being a waiter at times because you leave the table with an order 
And by the time you get to the kitchen, they could have changed what they wanted or what's being offered to them. It's, it's so complicated in that regard. I, I don't envy anyone that has to try and source these things because it is a bit of a fool's errand sometimes, in my opinion. Well, it's also something where clearly uh, a few people within that setup are uh, very au fait with using the media in the first place or very au fait with seeding things and knowing that that will probably have an influence overall on the way that people react, uh, maybe even floating it as, you know, Messi, Messi wants to leave. How can we generate some transfer, um, uh, I guess, uh, interest from that? Uh, not only that, but, you know, how can we put pressure on the club to re-sign uh, him at a higher contract or to get rid of the people that we want or to show what the real story is here is it's very strange because there's a there are there it isn't just about one thing anymore when a player says i want to leave the player is also indirectly saying well I, you know i would i would leave i'd like to leave if this guy's still here but obviously you know if this guy leaves then i could stick around uh and this that seems to be what they're saying with bartomeo right now yeah and that that goes back to kind of I, what I think I had said before that for me there are just certain twigs that feel reminiscent of Sergio Ramos's potential departure from Real Madrid a few years ago, the almost annual event with Cristiano Ronaldo in Real Madrid where he would talk about wanting to leave or not feeling feeling valued and a new contract would come. I think Messi's end game with this is potentially more structural changes, although saying that at this point we're speculating on what he's thinking when in actuality I think it's fairly normal for someone that has spent that long at one club that place to want some kind of change to not even feel comfortable waiting for that change because he knows that you know his time at the top if you will is decreasing because he is 33 and if he can get that guarantee of I think which City have talked about or what has been reported is uh, several years at City a transition to New York City FC and MLS, and then you know maybe even a year at Newell's potentially if he fancies that. It, it it seems to be a much more structured path with a greater intent to it than what's being talked about at Barcelona changing. Well, but at the same time, part of me also wonders. I mean, you know, I know Barcelona aren't totally in the power here, but uh, maybe I mean maybe they see the massive commercial benefits of having Messi, and you know it probably is hugely beneficial to have the image rights to such a player or, you know, being able to at least put him on a poster or something globally. Um, but part of me wonders whether for, uh, the part of the problem, part of what Messi is almost rebelling against is the fact that football doesn't seem to be the first thought always on uh, the Barcelona minds at the top. And the club isn't really being run in football terms right now. It's actually being run in business terms. Um, and he seems to be the face of the business, um, which is which is obviously fantastic. So he may be exercising his right. But part of me also wonder whether it is actually best for Barcelona to move on at this point. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair, fair comment to make as well, is that when you consider just how gargantuan his wages are, and yes, some of that will be toppled by the sponsorship deals and things that he brings in, it does feel as if this could be the perfect time for both to separate. I think the, the problem you have with that is it's a little bit like these one-club players that we see in England with, say, Steven Gerrard or, or Jamie Carragher, where you're almost thinking about that legacy as much as anything. Is Could you 
let's say Neil's old boys aside, just because you know that's where he's from and and there's a special attachment to that club. Could you see him playing for any other club in Europe? The thought of him playing against Barcelona in some kind of competitive fixture seems unthinkable, would have been unthinkable 12, 24 months ago. And I think that's where this becomes such a complicated matter is you do have to assess the legacy as much as kind of what will be the the short-term financial gain. I mean, yeah, and part of that is also uh, supplemented by the fact that there is that video online of the kid who's saying, Messi, you'll be dead to me in the same way as, you know, Thiago Alcantara is in the same way as uh, anyone, anyone else who left the club in this time. Um, and that, it is kind of strange because, I mean, I guess in the moment, obviously, people feel very strongly about things. Um, but it, even, even outside of that, you know, Part of me is wondering, Chris, I mean, I'm not saying Messi isn't a fantastic player, but Barcelona had a fantastic infrastructure anyway, pre-Messi. Part of me wonders whether they have not sacrificed so much, but uh, how do I I put it? The luxury of Messi, the silk sheets within which they arrested, which is Messi for years, maybe has misled them a little bit as to where the club should be or is. And actually, they would have been better going down the route of trying to uh, develop players and, you know, come up with their own stars, these kind of things that I get it. Messi is a star of that. But at the same time, should they have almost banked on Messi? It's strange because, uh, I mean, you know, they bought Coutinho and players like that. It was a very, it seems that they've also slightly led themselves down this route where they've gone, well, you know, we'll go down the star-led route. Uh, okay, we'll buy all these, we'll buy Suarez, Coutinho, Neymar, all these guys. And then suddenly they've gone, oh no, actually we don't want to do that. We'll go down another route. It's been so misguided and there's been so little planning in it. It almost feels, it, it feels a bit stupid at this point. They've gotten to this point. If that make, Does that make sense? Yeah, I, th- I think that goes back to what we talked about with those legacy players, that there is a point where you become beholden to them. And it's not that, Messi is a bad player all of a sudden. I think it's more, how do you accommodate him tactically? We've seen that manifest in a few different ways where they've gone for 4-4-2s and they've gone for him as a false nine. And nothing has quite worked, I think, to the same efficiency as before. And Mm -hmm. that in itself is is a difficult thing to try and wrestle with because, you know, you could argue it's like those marriages that don't end... uh, in a big explosion, they end sort of quite quietly. It's not that they they don't necessarily want to be united anymore. It's more a case of it just doesn't work for either party. And I think that's where, again, to lean back on that legacy thing, if Barcelona hadn't fought for him to stay and had just said, yeah, okay, go, that would be seen as almost disloyal. And so much of this, I think, is managing the optics and that, is something that we forget, I think. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, get, I guess I'm also slightly just disappointed overall by the fact that it's happening. Sometimes, I guess, the there, there feels like there is a lot of potential in a Messi or someone like that. And sometimes you would like to see, I don't know, you'd almost want to see that that player might have to be traded somewhere else or, you know, uh, whatever, it, which I quite enjoy sometimes in NFL or NBA or any of these things, when you see a salary cap or whatever, 
And it would be interesting to see what would happen if, you know, Messi was to go to a Napoli or to go to a, you know, not an Everton, but, a, you know, an Inter, <laughs> somewhere like that. It, it, it makes for kind of fascinating, as a fascinating just thought exercise in the first place, right? Which is partly why people like it as journalists, because they can write endless articles about Messi, the past, what Argentinians have done, what Barcelona have done, what Inter Milan would do. What There are so many different articles, I guess. There's so much, uh, there's a, a well for content for weeks. Yeah, without doubt. And I, and I think that's that's almost how, in, a, in an odd way, he feeds the the situation regardless of what he does whether he stays there will be think pieces about why he stayed and there will be people talking off the record about why he stayed and things like that and that that is what I talk about when I say the pageantry it's not it's not all bad but it certainly feels like the further we get into this game the more we discuss everything that goes on around it rather than just the actual football and it's it's an interesting change I guess if nothing else yeah, this is a strange one. Um, should, should we go down some of the tweet, the the replies? Because I think the replies actually lead a pretty good, um, pretty good uh, running order for us. Uh, let's start off with uh, one of the two Zaldivar twins. Uh, it is with all the messy things going on, prompted me to think of the question: What football moments have made you cry? Um, it's, I guess it is a very natural segue uh, off the messy bit. Have you cried a lot at football, Chris? Uh, you'd be surprised given some of the stuff I've had to watch as a Newcastle fan. Um, I think the, the closest the closest I've come have been uh, Peter Lovenkrantz scoring, I think it was just days after his father passed away. Um, and it had been, I think, maybe two months since my own mother had passed away. So there was a sense of empathy there that sort of transcended any sport in that moment that he could kind of focus on that and then Jonas Gutierrez after his battle with cancer because um we were lucky enough you and I and and our good friend Mark Speller to to sit in a room with him for a little bit and I think what is always interesting to me is seeing how people change when they see a red light and I didn't see that with with Jonas I saw someone that was consistent in his character, and I think more than anything, just really loved that football club. I mean, he has a tattoo sort of saying as much, commemorating Newcastle. So I think to see not only him survive that battle that he had personally, but then to come back and to be so influential in keeping the club up, knowing they weren't really going to re-sign him, knowing or not knowing at that point, but to later learn that via a phone call, it, it was very touching to see that at least someone at that club you knew cared without question. Yeah, and, and obviously too in, uh, kind of incredibly uh, not easy to relate to, but you know moments which you'd imagine a lot of people uh, would say, yeah, I can understand that one. Um, I'm trying to think of moments which have made me... Not many is going to compare to what you've just listed there, I don't think. Um, I mean, there was the recent title win. Was there, was there any moment at that? Oh, uh, actually, you know what? Yeah, I mean, I guess with with everything that's uh, just been going on, I think recently a lot of people are very emotional. Um, I think I actually kind of... Uh, it's kind of funny because I think uh, normal people on a daily basis can't sit in front of a camera and maybe feel normal, but I feel like I've spent so much time in front of the camera now... Uh, 
whether that be to a lot of people or a few people, that you can't, you don't forget it's there, but you are you feel a lot more natural maybe expressing yourself on it. Um, okay. And it's kind of strange because I Liverpool won the league, and I genuinely kind of broke down just thinking of everything that had gone on in my life and in the people's lives. And I really was struck by how a lot of people died during COVID in that moment and sort of thought how sad it was that some people didn't quite make it to the point where they saw their club win that last title before they would pass away. Mm. Um, And I think that strangely that brought a tear to my eye despite not knowing directly uh, at that point anyway, someone who who passed away from COVID. and then, the, strangely, the other one which really, the other sporting moment which really made me cry and is still an incredibly emotional topic, I think, is Kobe Bryant. And I'm still not quite sure why, because, you know, I didn't grow up in the same way as I grew up with, you know, a Steven Gerrard or someone like that. Um, but for some strange reason, there's something about, obviously, I think probably the circumstances, probably a lot of, I don't know, late nights spent watching the Lakers or uh, NBA 2K and things like that, which I guess um, have kind of influenced um, influenced what I what I felt, but it's still a very kind of touchy subject. But uh, in terms of fo- uh, football's crying, I didn't actually cry during 2005, the Champions League final. Uh, and I've not cried when we won the Champions League. I'll be honest, Krista, it's because it feels so natural. Uh, if you can, uh, people will love that. I, I think that's and people understand what parody. Is. Um, let us know on Twitter what, you, what your favourite uh, moment in terms of uh, high emotion was. Crying with uh, happiness doesn't quite count. I, I think it probably is sad moments. Uh, do you think people? I mean, do you do you think a player leaving a club uh, like a, a Messi or someone is? reason to cry i guess if you attach a lot of emotion to him and you've got a lot of memories that you feel incredibly bonded to him with the closest i ever came to that was probably with fernando torres i think just because i felt so sad as to how it ended it felt like a relationship with someone you know everyone has a relationship in their life where they're like oh if only we could have made this work um and then years later they go yeah that was never going to work um but ultimately uh you know you're happy when you see them with the next person winning the Champions League. I've had a lot of strange relationships in my life. Um, have you, did you have that about, I mean, apart from Jonas? Uh, Shira didn't really leave, did he, at a, an no, emotional point? in the same way. I think... No. Do you ever cry at Mike Ashley, over Mike Ashley? Do you ever just think, God, the wasted potential of Newcastle United? Not, not, not gotten to the point of tears, but I think there's been days where... I've been apathetic, which is arguably worse because nice. I don't feel anything. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think the first time they were relegated, I just, I wanted nothing to do with any of them. And I'd never felt that before. So that was a very new feeling. Um, and I think it, it, it's kind of the same with when you talk about players leaving. I think not exclusively, but almost always, it tends to be a player from your childhood because I think that's when right. there's an innocence attached to your love of, of the team and the player. And I think it's without realizing sometimes them leaving is as much an acknowledgement of the passage of time as it is anything else. Right. 
And so yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's that's kind of when I think of now. I look back on <clears throat> sort of the championship season of '09 when I was a, a much younger man at university, and the '96 season when I was a kid, and my my priorities were so much more different. And and they, I don't want to sound too jaded when I talk about this stuff, but when you know there was when your life was just a lot different. Um, and I think that that is where that comes from. I think as you get older, you sort of accept that players, especially these days, are a lot more transient. That they're, they're just there for a moment. And it, it might even sound cruel of me to say this, but you're almost anticipating their departure no sooner than they've arrived. Yeah, I guess there are certain players. Maybe as well, that is partly what you feel when you're at a club where you feel like you have to sell at some point. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Though. Maybe I feel a little bit like that with Thiago. I can't quite work that out. It's a strange one. There are a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of emotion, uh, a lot of emotion attached to players when you're young, strangely. I guess because you look up to them in a weird way. But I know, we- weirdly, I wish I hadn't looked up to Robbie Fowler because of his hair or Michael Owen. <laughs> I think a lot of young guys had the Michael Owen hair. And if you can't remember, we don't mean Michael Owen hair now, which is obviously probably the haircut of a middle-aged man. Um, we mean the haircut of a young boy who's clearly just brushed it all forward with gel and then weirdly sort of parted it. Like, like if you did that now, people would be like, what is wrong with you? Why have you done your hair like that? But at the time, it seemed so natural. Am I right, Chris, or no? Yeah, it, it was very much of the time, I think. Uh, yeah, and couldn't be any more of that time. Uh, well done, he's 14. Um, it, there are a couple of other uh, good questions here as well. Uh, Luke Dore says, is it, re- is it a real blow if Liverpool do not make any more signings? When he says any more, he means after the one left back, backup left back that they did. Uh or do you have to just trust the process? What do you think? Uh, well, uh, I'm kind of interested to hear what the outsider's take is here, uh, Chris, because the insider's take can go in, in multiple different directions. But the outsider's take uh, could be a more fascinating one than, um, you know, Elton John over here. Well, I think um, we talk a lot about players being like a new signing when they've been injured for a while. And these players mm-hmm. haven't been injured, but Curtis Jones, Ryan Brewster, Harvey Elliott, Kiana Hoover, there to me is a quartet of young players that have sort of dipped in and out of the first team. Brewster was obviously at Swansea last season for a tiny bit and did very well, actually looked really good. And Especially I just, in the, when they were trying to get up, yeah. Yeah, and I just wonder if, as much as there is a sort of temptation to sign players... And we talked about this a lot when Spurs didn't sign anyone. That oh, actually, you know, they've kind of benefited from the continuity a bit. That was the the pro right. opinion. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think where Liverpool would benefit is that that means they could start to transition that quartet of youngsters in there um, and give them more opportunities because... I think actually that you do gain something from that pressure. It does. I think it does sort of build you up in a way that, as good as Championship football week to week is, it's a it's a different kind of development, in my opinion. Um, and I think yeah, as long as they don't fall into the trap of you're just around the first team and you fall into this sort of development limbo where you're not playing for the youths, you're not playing for the first team. They should be okay. And that's where I, I personally, I think if, if Klopp just throws those four in and starts to give them more trust, then I, th- I think it'll be fine. I, I've got to admit, I, I, I'm less, it's less that I'm worried about the, t- the talent drop-off at Liverpool because I think there are a few guys that are still within their peak years. Um, it, for me, it's more the fatigue and the um, not, not familiarity breeding contempt, but that kind of a feeling around the squad um, and also just the fact that then if the spine begin to become frustrated, what happens then, you know, uh, the, the midfield still to me, strangely, as much as, you know, we've said that Klopp has built a fantastic side, which is true, still doesn't really have the structure that I think it needs um, alongside Fabinho. And there are sometimes games where it can feel like it passes Fabinho by possibly because the structure around him doesn't quite feel right. Um, and, you know, obviously Liverpool played Arsenal and it was a, a game which you can probably make a thousand different excuses for. But the fact is that that Liverpool team should have at one point expected to quite comfortably beat a team, no, no disrespect to Arsenal, but at Arsenal's point in their transition. Mikel Arteta has done a great job, I guess, of um, bringing that team forward and especially injecting them with a lot of confidence. And I think Liverpool, it's not their confidence is low, but I do think they're a little bit more aware that right now there are people who could pick at their soft underbelly of, uh, you know, possibly not having all the right pieces in the field. Salah not looking particularly confident. Mane looking a bit frustrated. Um, there are also some you, there are also some very obvious uh, defensive issues in there, such as Robertson and Van Dijk looking like a scary pairing on one side, and obviously that naturally uh, leading to people targeting what is considered a weaker side in Trent and Gomez and therefore there being sometimes a bit of an overload on one side and obviously that being a not impossible much more difficult situation to defend uh and also then that you know with Trent bombing forward sometimes that naturally leaves uh Gomez or whoever um wide open does that fit disappear with, with Thiago for you or does it need to be more than that I think I mean I'm not quite sure I'm I'm not uh, Tiago obviously uh, has great pressing stats uh, at Bayern. Uh, I think he's, you know, he had very good pressing stats just com- compared to the rest of Europe uh, in terms of players. 
He was also great at transitioning the play and making some very insightful passes. If I'm honest, I don't know if that's my top choice as a signing. And if we've got 30 million, we definitely have close to 52 million, which could have been Timo Werner. Um, I also think there's so much more to come from a navigator or a Minamino or like you say, a Curtis Jones or someone like that. Um, I guess I'm a little bit concerned that we don't quite know where all these pieces fit right now. And also that uh, with Jordan Henderson as the captain right now, uh, which, which clearly is what Jurgen Klopp wants and clearly what Jurgen Klopp has kind of worked towards, uh, how we structure the midfield. Because I think that is the real issue right now. Liverpool's only real game plan is either to press and to win the ball, which obviously has happened a fair amount in the club, but also um, to maybe make a bit of a cheeky foul when the players are breaking through on goal. So a Fabinho or a Wijnaldum picks up a, a foul. Uh, Thiago may help to ease that and probably transition the ball through midfield in a more silky fashion. But I am also concerned that it is fatigue that will set in at some point and we'll just see the players not begin to burn out, but in a similar way to Dortmund, begin to um, not maybe feel the same element of creativity in the moment or the same uh, predisposition to run in the same way as they did before. There was, there was also an interesting, fascinating article that I read today. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember what the, the, who the writer was, but he was talking about the use of uh, caffeine products uh, by Liverpool, which is interesting. I, can't, I couldn't work out whether it was a um, whether he was uh, alluding to something else. Uh, but he was saying naturally due to the way that Liverpool have kept, kept their players stimulated, there will be a drop-off because they're coming towards the end of the stimulus cycle. And therefore, you should expect Man City to easily walk the league this season. Uh, I mean, can you see Liverpool dropping outside of the top four though, Chris? No, not that far. That that feels way too far. Do you, but you, I, am I right in thinking? I, I mean, there isn't this feeling that they'll win the league again. But then there is also the feeling that people had before with Klopp's side, where they said, "Well, Dortmund won't win the league back to back," and they did start the season poorly, and then Klopp did uh, inevitably, due to the story, turn it around. Yeah, I, I think it, it's an. Int- I think what it is, it's an interesting position for Klopp to be in now because. He is sort of the favourite. He has he has to guard the title rather than attempt to break through the castle wall, so to speak. Um, and yeah, I right. think we've already seen, even as early as we are into to preseason, if you can even say that about this weird situation we're in, I Whatever think you've seen teams try to press Liverpool a bit more now and sort of apply that pressure. I think there's it's not less fear, but I think there's more of a, an acceptance that you have to be proactive against them. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially at one point uh, there there becomes a fear of losing. But then after a, a while of that team winning, it becomes more of, well, if they're going to win anyway, we might as well attack them and give it our best. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then begins to turn over. I think Arteta played it fantastically and actually played it fantastically twice against Klopp in a month. Um, but uh, you know, maybe not all managers will be able to do that. And, you know, maybe we also have to accept that Liverpool uh, won by some very fine margins not long ago. Um, what do you think about the, I mean, who, I, I know it's kind of silly to ask you who Liverpool should have signed, but do you think, I mean, Thiago is one silky player, 
right. not sure he solves the problems. I personally would have liked someone to switch up the attacking lineup, and I personally would have liked Timo Werner. But then I'm maybe I'm just being too hopeful. No, I don't. I don't dislike that move at all. Um, I think what is intriguing to me and says a lot about where the respective clubs are at that Liverpool could, in theory, sign Thiago and ship Junie Vijnaldum out for roughly the same figure. Um, that's not a slant on Junie Vijnaldum, I should say. I think he's been a very good player for Liverpool. Um, mm. And the role that he's been moulded into has actually been very impressive to watch because I was, I was very... I was a bit sceptical on him after watching him for a season at Newcastle just because he had a tendency to disappear. And I thought that's going to be even more pronounced at a big club if he doesn't sort that um, because <clears throat> of just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, I think <sighs> there's just part of me that thinks, you know what, Brewster is one of these young players that has had to be patient for a little bit, I think, in terms of uh, he wanted to play like yesterday. I think he did been happy to start at 15 years old if you'd asked him to um and the temptation is to throw him in just because of how that Swansea form went but I think the path for a development of a young player is never linear and so if you can't get Werner then I don't think Brewster is a bad trade-off for that I actually think that you don't necessarily want to disturb the rhythm of that front three great podcast and so that's where Brewster could actually serve as a sort of symbiotic solution to that, where he can come in and offer you something. I think the only thing I would warn Klopp against is just throwing him on whenever they're losing, because that is just such an awful position for a young player to come into. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess at the same time, if um, if Liverpool had have brought someone like that in, maybe it would again sort of signal to uh, the, the people in the you know, the, maybe the Harry Wilson cycle, those kind of things. Um, that, again, is another set of players who maybe Liverpool have brought through their academy and aren't going to play at all. But I, I, I've got to be honest, I, I, I can't... It's not that I'm negative about the way that Liverpool are being, but I'm not. it doesn't leave me feeling confident as a fan and a fan who, at this point, feels like Liverpool should be capitalising. While they can, to be honest, rather than just thinking, well, this is a God-given right. It's more Liverpool need to do it whilst there is impetus uh, to win the title because the, the concern for me is it might be very difficult to build back up to that point uh, without Klopp, and especially if we end the relationship with Klopp on a bit of a sour note in a similar way to the way that Dortmund did. Um, which comfortably leads me on, Kristen, to another uh, documentary uh, of, uh, I guess, a club where things were a little bit sour at one point, but maybe I falsely assumed from the outside that Jose Mourinho would sour them further. Uh, David says, have you watched the Spurs All or Nothing series? We're obviously, we're obviously not watched the whole thing because you can't binge watch it, strangely. Um, but, Chris, the first three episodes are out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have watched one and two. Uh, I'm assuming you've watched one, two, and three. I have indeed. Thoughts? Oh, you haven't? No, I have. I've watched all three. <clears throat> all right. Okay. Um, thoughts on uh, Jose Mourinho's pro- propaganda machine? Uh, well, look, I think we have to acknowledge that, first and foremost, these are marketing materials for the most part. They're heavily 
influenced by the subject in terms of Daniel Levy will get final say on these things. And I think that was one of the accusations thrown at the Man City one was that it became very yeah. bland and, and like a brochure rather than um, a, an actual documentary. Because <laughs> it sounds bad coming from a Newcastle fan. What, what football fans really want to see is a Sunderland till I die. They want to see things right. implode. Um, and even then, truth be told, the second season of Sunderland till I die, I didn't really enjoy it because I didn't feel like I actually heard anything from the players. It was just these two David Brent-esque owners sort of tearing about the place. What I can say about the first three episodes is it feels like, to me, Mourinho is very desperately trying to build a bond with his players. And yet, at the same time, he seems to create an odd distance with them through it being about him. So, do, do, do you think he was he was he was kinder than I maybe he he had a different air to the maybe the air that I expected from Mourinho. Well, see, that's the thing. I I I don't know if if I necessarily agree with that. Just because he brings Harry Kane into the room, and his pitch to Harry Kane is, "Look, you want to be a star, you want to win things. I think people don't rate English players. They think the league is great, but they think." What is it? He says the movie stars come from other countries or something like that. Right. Yeah. And you're like, great. Good good, good line. Yeah. Strong start. Brilliant. And then he sort of goes, I'm pretty big time as well. I don't know. It's sort of, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm pretty special as well. And it's just, I just think it's not about you in that sense. I, I get, I get him saying that, you know, I think I can help you unlock there. You know, I've worked with X, Y, Z, and what have you. I feel like Melito, I, Eto, yeah. I mean, Drogba, yeah. I can, I, I feel like I have seen what it takes, Not and I yourself. can show that to you. You know, that kind of thing. And it's just, I don't know. I feel like he's the internal struggle I see with Mourinho is the need to be personable and connect with players, because I think his default is I'm going to challenge them, and either it highlights their frailty and I can move them on because the the owner sees that as well. Or it either spurs them on to prove me wrong or serves as an epiphany and they do it either way. So so the win's always for Mourinho. At least that's how I think he views it. And I think what he's starting to realise is actually things have changed. And mm. when you do that to several players, they can potentially form a click. And before you know it, you're out on your ear. So he's trying to like build more of a kind of bond in the way that, you know, like he tells Deli Ali, I think you're a lazy trainer. And Deli Ali laughs, and I'm a bit like, I'd be mortified if my manager said that in front of me. But, you know, horses for courses and all that stuff for all different people. But I just think that that's the thing that I've taken from it, is that internal struggle of of him trying to stick true to his methods that got him there, but adapt to the way that football has changed, just from a man management standpoint. Yeah, it, it was quite fascinating, actually, to see Mourinho's techniques, I guess, and also... But also how quickly he turned it around. Uh, and maybe I'd sort of forgotten that because I think Spurs felt a little bit like one of the forgotten teams this season in the rest of the league. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but it, it didn't seem like there was too much focus on them because there were other people with a, you know, maybe a more sexy manager like uh, Frank Lampard or someone like that. Or there was more focus on Manchester United's resurgence, etc. Or, or even the Wolves or something like that. So um, it is pretty fascinating. Uh, to watch and it's changing my perspective on both Spurs and Jose Mourinho uh, 
Although, yeah, when it comes down to documentary making, uh, again, whilst it is great to capture this stuff, I'm not always sure it's the most incisive documentary, but maybe it feels insightful in some sense. It feels closer than I felt, but not as close as I'd like to be or as as much as I'd like to see. Um, We can, I guess, seamlessly transition into Chelsea. Uh, A couple of questions about Chelsea. Uh, There was actually uh, one, two, yeah, two questions. One from uh, James who says, what are the expectations for Chelsea uh, in this coming up, uh, upcoming season? And then there was also one from uh, Dara White who says, will Chelsea actually challenge for the title this season? Both good questions, Chris. Uh, similar vibes. Will Chelsea challenge for? I mean, you know, maybe it's a stupid, uh, unbinary question that I'm asking you. But do you think Chelsea got the potential to to up their game to such a significant level this season? They have the potential. It's how Lampard straddles the balance of that team that I'm curious about. Yeah, right, because it's all attackers. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, as you look at the build-up of the squad, the strength is ultimately in the attack, and yeah, I think at the same time the trouble they have is is defensively, it's a bit more frail. Right, because they're, they're also they're very unsure about a number of things. For instance, the goalkeeper. For instance, how to set up the back line, and I think a lot of people. Uh, part part of me is curious, Chris, whether um, because of the way that Liverpool have obviously won the title, obviously that impacts a little bit on what people think of as how you can um, win a title. Now, obviously, down the years, there have been a lot of big players that people have signed, but it hasn't always been that someone signed a massive centre-back and then gone on to win the title. That just so happens to be what Liverpool have done uh, with Virgil van Dijk. seems that a lot of people now are sort of billing Koulibaly as that kind of a player. I know he's possibly more likely to go to City at this point or somewhere else. But people seem to be talking about needing to bring in someone to bring some order into that back line. Yeah, I, th- I think any team with a struggling defence or one that is not at the level desired seems to think that hmm. there is a Virgil van Dijk out there who can just bring all of the notes in line on the, on the music. Um, and I think... I mean, look, if, if you had said, you know, three years ago or five years ago, Liverpool are going to win the title with a left-back from Hull City, a central defender from Southampton, um, you know, another defender from Charlton and an academy hey. you'd sort of be looked at quite funny. But And the £65 million goalkeeper from Roma, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the random Brazilian goalkeeper that they got from Roma for a, a hefty fee. I think... Yeah, 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 that's a better way of billing it, isn't it? Yeah, the... That would you have bought? Would you ever? If anyone had said, which club would you get a really good goalkeeper from that will end up winning you a the Champions League, b the title? No one would have said Roma. I, and and I think that's that's where you have to give Klopp some credit. I think in some ways that opens a wider debate about how um, dismissive we can be of where we actually sign players from um, and how we can be a bit elitist in that regard. But I think you have to give Klopp credit for the way that he built this team in such a robust way that actually they were very defensively sound. And I think that's where Lampard is at right now is that he has experimented a bit. He's introduced some young players. 
granted, he didn't have a transfer window last year. They kept their powder dry in January. But now he's got several big players at the time of recording. Havertz is apparently on the way. Thiago Silva is incredibly experienced. I don't think he will play 60 games next season. I think he'll be more of a rotational player. Um, but Timo Werner, Hakim Ziyech, they have signed big players in a summer when, to be truthful, I think every team is feeling the impact of, of Corona and reduced uh, revenue streams. So you could argue there's an element of pressure on them to win something. I think the pressure is on Lampard to look convincing. That's what I think it is, it, that we need to be here in 12 months and say, yeah, we know exactly how Chelsea play. We know the style. We know what needs to sort of potentially come in that next transfer window to, to make it the perfect team. I think at the minute he's still a few steps away from that. And so that's his goal almost. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, I'll be interested to see what Lampard can do with this side because they are they are an exciting team, uh, not only on paper, but also in real life. And obviously Werner is incredibly exciting as a player. As is he, you know, you, you've listed most of those so far. And I think the progression of this side is what is also very exciting. They feel like they're at the beginning of a curve, should we put it that way. And with or without Lampard, I think a lot of people will be very excited to see the way that this Chelsea team go. Although it is interesting, Chris, to see all the, the claims that someone like Lampard is actually quite a big pull for players because a lot of players feel maybe a little bit um, tempted when they speak to Lampard. But maybe I can't work out whether people are just correlating Lampard being the manager with Chelsea being the only club in Europe really willing to spend this level of money. Um, well, I think the thing is his career was recent enough that a number of these players will have grown up watching him. So I think that plays into it as well. This is not someone dusting off black and white photos. He's still very uh, fresh in the memory. And I think his ability to relate to those players because he is so recently retired. I think you saw it at Derby. There was a number of young players in that squad that seemed to benefit from his presence. And and to be fair, as good as we're going to say, the likes of Christian Pulisic, who I know wasn't an academy graduate, but a young player that mm. they, they brought in. Um, Fikeo Tomori, I know he had a rough sort of end to the season, but looked good in periods. Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham. As much as we can talk about their talent propelling them there, I think he's managed them well at, uh, at the same time. And I think he has been able to garner a trust from them that I think is, is indicative of his managerial ability. I, d I don't think he's as bad as some of his critics want to paint out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I yeah, I understand that side as well. Um, a lot of very exciting managers in the league though. I think this is probably the most excited I've been for a lot of managers in years. Um, you know, I mean, we're interested to see where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer goes. We're interested to see where, uh, when, it, when I say goes, I mean, with this project, not necessarily when he leaves. Um, we're interested to see what happens with Lampard. It's it's kind of coming towards the end of a cycle for two massive managers in the league in Pep and Klopp. Um, and then there's Mikel Arteta, who seems to be like a silent uh, influence on that Arsenal side, um, or more silent possibly than uh, you know the, the Klopp's or the Peps out there. So it's um, pretty fascinating. Yeah, Arteta fascinates me generally just because he's taken a squad that I think had a lot of bent pipes in it and straightened them out. Um, I, I think right. I'd, I'd have, if I was an Arsenal fan, I think I'd have driven Xhaka to any club that he wanted to go to. Um, and yet now he looks a lot more 
serviceable under Arteta. I think what made him so good at Gladbach, which was his ability to pass well on transition and make the most of spaces, that's something Arteta's identified and used, I think, quite well during his, his brief time. I think a little bit like Lampard in that sense. I know he's had less time, but he has established an identity, I think, quite quickly. And they're very much at the start of that curve in terms of his progression. So I, th- I th- my hopes are quite high for Arsenal this year. I- I'm worried they'll disappoint me, but I, I think I- if I was a fan of that team, I'd be full of optimism going into this season. Yeah, I felt that the same after watching them towards the end of the Premier League season and also just seeing the the tone of the players. I don't think we've seen that kind of tone or feel around the club or, or that level of expectation or even that level of positivity, which uh, a lot of, it seems like the players are actually excited to play for Arteta, whereas maybe before they weren't as excited to play uh, for other managers, should we put it that way. Um, the I'm trying to think of the best way to finish the podcast here Chris uh, we will make our top four and relegation predictions next week uh, pre actual season uh, who did Newcastle kick off against West Ham battle of the basket cases yeah a bit of a weird one are you, uh, just, just while we're here are you expecting that you guys will be an absolute basket case this season yeah I, I, I have a concern that actually we might prop the league up this year um, last season it was a bit more could be 14th could be 19th not too sure but they just got a pasting off Middlesbrough the other day 5-1 um, they haven't signed a striker yet at the time of recording so far Jeff Hendrick and a third choice goalkeeper of what are what they've got to show for it um, and yeah I just I, I just don't really rate Steve Bruce's ability to put together a, a modern tactical system with detail and intricacy I think he's a bit more broad brushstroke and I don't know if that works in the top flight anymore good old Steve Bruce um, I suppose he is still Steve Bruce uh, having having said that I, mean, I suppose we say good old uh, you know Gareth Southgate he is still Gareth Southgate and you know with all the criticism of the squad that he initially picked actually a lot of people seem quite happy now that the likes of Jack Grealish and uh, a couple of other players are in there Chris it's quite exciting to see this England team coming together. Yeah, that, that is. That absolutely is. I think what you're starting to see now is the fruits of that few-year period we had where we won a lot of youth tournaments. Um, and look, you know, that's not always a, a precursor to tremendous success at, at, uh, at senior international level, but... You look at the likes of Phil Foden, who was a star in one of those games. You look at Jaden Sancho. Then you throw in someone like Jack Grealish, who was with the Irish setup at that point. Um, you've got a lot of players that I think have a long-term future. And if you look at the teams that do well in major international tournaments, more often than not, you will find that it's because the core comes through at the same time. I think that was very much true of the Germany side that came through in, in 2009 at under-21 level that then went on to win the World Cup. There was a, a continuity there that I think benefited them considerably. So, yeah, you know, the the 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of hurt that we always hear about when we talk about England at international level, it, I think it's closer to being over than it's ever been in, uh, in my lifetime. Very uh, good point, actually, yeah. Um... It's also kind of fascinating um, to, to see what other countries are doing as well, because 
I think whilst we look at um, whilst we obviously look at the progression of England and we look at the likes of Sterling and Foden and there, there are some fantastic players, it's not as if we exist in just a bubble. There are fantastic youth players also coming through in other countries and sadly, uh, maybe for England, France, uh, Spain, Germany, even Italy at this point are transitioning into the next period. Maybe there is a hope that England are slightly ahead of the rest or that their curve and their arc might be a little bit quicker than others. Um, thank you very much for listening to the front three. If you are interested in the Van der Beek transfer, or is it Van der Beek, Chris? I, I can't work out which one it is. Van der yeah, let's go with Van der Beek. Back. Van der Beek. Van der Beek. It sounds better. It sounds more right. We've all been to Amsterdam uh, for uh, business. Um, not like that. Um then please head over to the Statman Dave channel, who is a man who's very okay with Amsterdam. Am I right, Chris? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've never been, I'm guessing? Just the airport. Right. Okay. Yeah, I suppose you can still get that stuff there as well. Um, yeah, it, it is a fantastic uh, location. I went in the winter, particularly cold, uh, and with my girlfriend. So uh, we all know that I went for the romance rather than, of course, the... Uh, prostitutes that I keep alluding to. Um, anyway, let's move, let's move on and not upset Adam Boltwood anymore. Keep this under the hour, he said. Well, here we are, Kristen. We kept it under the hour. Congratulations. Proud of us. Uh, big writing topics this week? Uh, none that I can think of. All that jumped into my head was, what's the point? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, and you can't put that in 600 words. <laughs> no. Well, no, you could. You could just write it continually. Um, although, yeah, again, probably not. Um, it's been wonderful to spend a bit of time with you. It's been wonderful to spend time in oh, your guys' course. ears as well. If you aren't uh, already sort of uh, following Kristen on social media platforms, especially Twitter, head over there, take a look. Um, it is uh, a very well curated uh, account and if you aren't already following the front three go ahead and take a look if you're not already subscribed which i kind of assume that you are at this point uh, then please go over to apple music spotify and all the normal uh, platforms uh go take a look at that and we'll see you again real soon right here on the front three